Hello, everyone. On this episode of 92,000 Hours, we are talking with Dr. Jeff Gurton. I met Jeff in our PhD program in Yellow Springs, Ohio, about six years ago. Actually, I met him online even earlier than that because he reached out to our entire cohort to introduce himself and make friends even before our classes started. I came to learn that outreach was very Jeff indeed. He is an extrovert and a friend maker. He is funny and passionate and charming and outspoken. He cares deeply about the things that he loves and the people he loves, especially his daughter, Audrey. And today we are talking about values. I think you'll find his take on it really interesting. I did. You know that because you've listened to my podcast, you know that I started with the same question that I ask every single person. It's my dearest, most favorite, favorite question. And I think it gets to the heart of who you are quickly. So if you don't count school, work, church activity, volunteerism, sports, all those things you do, tell me about what you are most proud of. What is your greatest accomplishment as a human being for who you are? I don't want you to ask this question. Uh, I knew you were going to. I've been listening and knew it was coming. Um, I, yeah, I've struggled trying to figure out how to answer this question because, um, you know, like obviously I want to be the cool guy that gives you the like um, unexpected answer that makes you think of how like alternate I am to, you know, counter cultural or whatever. Um, and there's a time where I think I would have giving you some kind of philosophical thing, but, um, you know, in the last six years, well, actually ever since you and I have known each other, I have been a parent. Um, I became a parent 10 days before, um, we, we met and, um, yeah, I mean, she's the only thing that really matters now. Um, so every, every time I think something has gone well, I take credit for that. And every time something's gone bad, I try to blame the other parent for that. <laughs> yeah. She's my, she's my, my, my thing. Isn't that amazing that after you become a parent, not everyone probably, but a lot of people, it becomes like you in some ways, like you really do have a North star in ways that you didn't yeah. know this person was going to be for you. If you don't, you're, you're doing something wrong. So talk to me about how parenting has, well, I'm just going to bring this up because you talked about first, <laughs> but talk to me about how parenting has informed or changed your value system? Ooh. Um, there, so I um, went to a Jesuit Catholic school and uh, I'm not Catholic. Um, I grew up that's very interesting. Opposite. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that's um, yeah. So I, I grew up very not Catholic and um, super evangelical. And so I went to a Jesuit school because I wanted to get something religious, but something very different from what I grew up with. And so in my grad work, um, I learned about this uh, kind of well-known Jesuit um, quote or a quote from a Jesuit. And it's something about um, falling in love is the most practical thing in the world because it um, changes everything. And I mean, it's very poetic, but uh, Pedro Arupe, if anybody is listening and wants to look that up. Um, but yeah, it's this great quote about uh, fall in love because it determines everything that you do. And um, yeah, you know, I think you can, you can see parents um, who have fallen in love with being a parent or, or fallen in love with their children because, you know, like every, that's their North star. And 
you make decisions that are um, you know, not the best for, for you immediately so that you can do what's best for this thing that you love and, and is a parasite. I mean, that's what children are. They're, they're parasites who give us warm and fuzzies. <laughs> well, you gave, first you made me want to cry and then you made me want to laugh. So that's probably really good. That sounds that's very deaf to me. Yeah, yeah that's, um, that's, that's my uh, MO. <laughs> that, yeah, then you're like, this is, gro- this is going just how I wanted it to right from the start. <laughs> Um, but talk to like, so, wow, because that did make, like, we are supposed to be talking today about values and we are, and already from the start we are, and I'm interested in like that discussion of falling in love is practical because I mean, love is a value is something that in my work with students, I would see coming up over and over and over again. Um, because we talk like people can talk about all the things you can fall in love with. You can fall in love with a person and you can fall in love with a pat, like some, a, a you know, something that matters to you. Um, so talk to me about, talk to me about that a little, just because it came up. So, um, well, and, and if it informs any of your own personal values. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah you know, one of the things that I, I really wrestled with, and I think it comes to this right here that we're talking about is this myth that we tell ourselves about what we love and, and what we actually love. Wow. Um, you know, like, do we, do we really love our children or do we love the feeling our children give back to us? Sorry. If you're a second child in this world, you're a product of like narcissism because what the, what parents do who have a second child is so stupid, um, right? It, it's so traumatic to go from being a single person or a person, you know, that's in a, a partnership of some kind and to go to suddenly be a parent because your, your whole life shifts, right? If you love this thing that you've created, then everything in the world shifts, right? And it, it becomes now about them, which is why you know, we, we don't sleep and we don't eat and we don't take care of ourselves because we're, we're being a parent. So then, you know, I think the second kid comes around and it's because we sat there and we're like, Oh, think about all these warm and fuzzies I have, but we've forgotten what, what really was happening in the situation of how, you know, like how traumatic it really was. I'm, I'm getting really off track here. This is <laughs> you're how traumatic, edit. how traumatic it really was for the parent Yes. Or for the other child. Like, I mean, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. Right. (laughs) But yeah. So I think as, as a parent, we forget how, how rough it was, right. To go through that transition, which is probably like some kind of biology evolution that keeps our species alive. Right. Because it is, you, you fall in love with, with this relationship you have with this person. And, um, you know, I think people who are trying to raise healthy humans, realize that they've fallen in love with, with that person, not just with the feeling that they've given us. Um, you know, and I, you know, I think that's whenever there's trouble in the world is whenever people are in existence without feeling like people love them, um, rather than just love the feeling that they get from them. Yes. I totally agree with you. It's one of the harder things, like as your children grow up and move away and make their own choices, that is part of that whole parenting conundrum too, that like, not ready for that. Yeah. Like one day you'll be there, mister. And you'll be like, wow. Um, and it will like, it's a different new level of love and a different level of awe that somebody yeah. that you knew so well 
has their own perspective that is not informed by you. Yeah. There's another question I was expecting you to ask me. <laughs> so I, I came <laughs> ready for th- that one. Like I had a good answer ready and you didn't ask it, but um, it's. Um, I, I do that. <laughs> well, it, it's a good idea because you, you got me off guard here. <laughs> but it's the idea of who am I? And again, I was trying to come up with a, a good answer for it. And, um, and I would say in, in at who I am right now as a person and, and who I've been for maybe um, 20 years, um, kind of like the majority of my professional adult life, um, I, I've been disillusioned um, across the board. And, and I think wow. I'm growing with my disillusionment um, through different things. Um, you know, I grew up in a very um, linear world, right? There were, you know, my parents just convicted me of this idea that, you know, kind of we reap what we sow and you do good things and, and good things happen because, you know, God loves good little boys. And so you follow the rules that God has put out for us and, and life's just going to take care of itself. And, um, right. There were all these rules that came along with that. If you just follow these rules, then, you know, things are going to work out and you're going to pull yourselves up by your bootstraps and life's going to work out. And I learned that none of that matters. Um, none of it at all. It, you know, that there. Yes, most of us cannot get ahead without being good at what we do, but that's being good at what we do isn't what gets us ahead. It's this, you know, like standard thing in life that we just have to meet this threshold of. And then typically what actually gets us ahead in life is just dumb luck. Um, You know, luck from who we were born to and where we were born to, when we were born to. Um, But then luck is in just who we rub shoulders with, um, you know, who we meet in the parking lots to who we went to school with or who somebody knows somebody else that, you know, knows me. Um, it, and so there's ways that this is just a, uh, the world is, it, the world just operates by luck. And I think we try to tell ourselves the opposite um, because it, it seems scary if it operates by luck. There, it's random and it's, um, it's chance there's, I'm out of control if it operates by luck. And that's something that gives a lot of us the, uh, the heebie jeebie anxiety, creepy kind of things. How have you handled, like, given that you came to that realization or felt the disillusionment, like talk to what was that journey like for you? Because that could devolve right into some dark places. It does. Yeah. And it, and it does every time because, you know, I, I kind of get my bearings and then all of a sudden I dig deeper or something else because I'm a person who doesn't learn from my mistakes. And, you know, and so I make the same mistake again and I am like, oh, I'm disillusioned again. And I go through another devolving dark kind of place. So, yeah. Um, I mean, disillusionment, what it's about is that we have learned the rules to get a, to just get through in life. Um, you know, whatever rules that means in terms of relationships, in terms of how we interact with people, um, who we talk to, where we live, all those kind of things. We just, we know the rules. And then when we learn that the rules that we've been basing things on aren't really what's happening, um, it, it's really scary because now it's like, Hey, I've, I felt competent in life and suddenly I'm not because now everything that I feel like I've known is now changed. And so you, you're out of control. Um, you, you don't know how to behave. You don't know how to proceed because you can't trust the things that you've always trusted. Interesting. How has that affected your own value system? 
Yeah. Um, so for me, it um, I, one of my personal strengths or go-to things is I'm very curious. And so I, through my academic work, I just kept finding myself asking this kind of question, like, why did I have it so wrong, you know, and, or, or how did I, um, how did I misunderstand this or, or what really is the key to success? If I tried these things, then, you know, like, I want to learn, like, you know, this, this is BS. This isn't the key to success. I tried this. And so what's the next one. And so uh, for me, you know, I, I kind of dealt with my um, dark places by academically trying to, to understand it and learn more and, and pick it apart. And then eventually trying to research it, understand it. Would you say, I mean, I've done this, this work with students and, <laughs> and with other people in my life, poor people that I deal with, where I like take them through an exercise and we have it on our space where like, you can um, go through and identify what are your core values yeah, and, yeah. Um, and like define them for yourselves. Um, but I, like, I'm interested in what, if you think of the things that are core to you, because it's interesting, you've already brought up so many things that are so laden, right? Because you've talked about curiosity, but you've also talked about your academic pursuits. So there's some like, like, and then you've talked about your religious upbringing, and then you've talked about rules and I'm like already <laughs> that fast. And there's like a lot of dense material within those sentences right off the bat. So talk to me about like, what is it that you value? So, hmm. What do I value? I, that's a, I don't really know what really it is that drives me to this. Um, you know, I, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts and um, several of them are like kind of mini therapy sessions where, um, you know, somebody asks a question or brings up something and I, I by the way, I'm like, no therapist, just so we know. <laughs> True. Yeah. Put the disclaimer out there. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, they're definitely not therapy sessions because you don't talk back whenever I'm talking to my, my phone as I'm listening to you. <laughs> um, right. But you guys, you, you bring up things that um, there was a guest that talked about conflict avoidance and it was this like quick little side note. Well, I think we're all actually conflict avoidant, but anyways, Right. And you know, like, oh, I want to know more about that. But yeah. there's been like that moment. I was like, oh, yeah. Like, I always think I'm not afraid of conflict. But then I start to think about it. I'm like, I do conflict avoidance things. You know, so like there's so many good topics that just really, I think, pause me and, and send me into this like internal yeah. um, dialogue with myself, which is, is my own personal free therapy. So, Which is the that. goal, right? That we all think about ourselves a little bit more and how we operate. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I think my answer to that is that what drives me is a sense of justice. Um, that sounds I, so like you. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, social justice. Absolutely. But I think we need to maybe understand it a little bit more personally so that we can extend that empathy to people who are um, less privileged and, and then need social justice to happen to them um, so that they can just live. Right. But um, yeah, I, I think that, okay, so here's part of my history that other people don't know that, you know, I grew up super evangelical and um, you're going to ask the question later about a mentor and I'm not gonna be able to answer that because 
mentors were something I didn't grow up with in the evangelical church because everything is about authority and it's about this authoritarian structure. Um, now that was my experience of the church. And, and what I've learned since then is that my church doesn't have a um, hierarchy on authority, right? There are plenty of other churches that do that, but also lots of our business world operates in a very authoritarian hierarchical structure. And yeah. so I think I just grew up in a, a microcosm that's the same valued as lots of um, capitalistic kind of, you know, uh, value systems, but it just comes from a different place. Um, and so, you know, whenever you're the, at the bottom of the hierarchical, hierarchical chain, there is no such thing as justice. And if you exist down there, then you just, you just have to learn to live in an unjust situation. Um, and so I think that's, that's part of what has driven everything about my intellectual curiosity. It's so interesting because this is so an aside probably, and <laughs> it's so about me. And so, but it's been, it's, I've, I've recently been thinking a lot about this in the work about authority in the workplace, because I know that I personally have a significant mistrust, distrust of authority. It is a, it's a blocker for me. It is something that I personally struggle with, like the idea of managing up, just that idea yeah. pisses me off. Um, like, and that I'm supposed to please a particular person where I'm like, what are you talking about? That person has their job. I have my job. Let's both do our jobs. And I do the same with people that report to me. So when I, like when people report to me and they say things like, well, that's above my pay grade or that's, and, and I think like, no, 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 we're all in this. Like we all work here. So especially when it comes to things about what we value or what our culture is, it can't be one person's because that's not yep. the truth. The truth is that it's hap like the culture we're all in. <laughs> and so, so it's a struggle for me because then how do those people feel when I say back to them, that's not true. And they're like, what are you talking about? You have all the power. So here's a little bit of the problem that we exist in. Um, and probably anybody listening to your podcast, unless you have a very international reach, maybe. But in America, we are the most individualistic culture in the entire human existence. And if you just said that you can't do this as an individual, what does that mean about our organizations, about um, you know whether that organization is a for-profit thing, a government, an education, a church, right? If, if we think that the individual is what's important, then, I, I mean, then we're going to run our organizations like we've been running them and we're going to get the results that we've been getting. Love it. Okay. Talk to me about your Talk to me about like, that's, that's, that's again, Jeff, how am I supposed to dig into all of these things? So talk to me about what you mean by that. Um, our value as a society on individualism and what you learned about what that means in practice. And in yeah. so you had a guest on talking about your core values as a person, yep. right? And, and I want to look at the term values a little bit differently. Um, so one of the ways I try to, um, when I was in the classroom, ask you know, my students to think about this was to ask them the question, when was the last time you saw your parents naked? Right. And that's, you know, <laughs> exactly right. It's, it's one of those things where half the room is like, I, I need to unthink what I'm thinking, you know, like, 
no, 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 stop, stop, stop. And then the other half is like, yeah, whatever, like yesterday, no big deal. And right. There's, there's no, I can't tell one student that they're right or they're wrong or they're weird or they're not weird. Right. That's just a, a family and it's not a family value, but it's, it's this norm that we live with. And for families who grow up where clothing is optional most of the time, right. It's just, it is what it is. And life moves on just like it moves on in your, my house, but there's other ways of doing that. And it's no different. It just has more or less clothing. Right. But it's one of those things that we grew up with nobody telling us this. We just grew up in a place where it was the norm and we don't know any better. Right. If you grew up in those households where everybody is, you know, clothed from the, the chin to the ankle, right. Then that's just what you think life is. And, and nobody told you this is how it's supposed to be or the opposite. Right. If you, if your parents run around naked or whatever, right. Nobody told you this is a good or bad thing. Um, unless maybe your mom was like, now, when you go stay at somebody's house, <laughs> please don't You're gonna have you know. to wear your pajamas, <laughs> <laughs> but it's that story that, um, I think about it. Like it's that I tell this story. It's like, it's the, the fish were swimming in the water. And one of them says, how's the water today? And they say, what are you talking about? <laughs> like what's water? Right. Because it's just the water you swim in. You don't even realize that you're swimming in water. It's just what it is. Right. It's, it's, it's their existence. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's so common that you don't think about it. Yeah. And that's what individualism is to Americans. Right. The idea that we can pay a CEO 300 times what the median worker makes, the fact that that's not alarming to people should be alarming. Right. That 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 ratio is so grotesque, right? This is not to say that, you know, people at the top shouldn't make a lot more than the people at the bottom or the median. Of course they should, but is that person contributing 300 times what the, the rest of the organization is, is offering? And so let me just get a little bit into the weeds with this. And, and you and I both have been in academia. So academia is built like the design is to be as monetarily inefficient as possible. Um, now, I don't know that that's in, its intent, but that's its design. And so when I hear about people who are frustrated with college costs, first of all, they don't know what they're talking about because they're the ones demanding swimming pools and rec centers and things like that, right? So, I mean, they're the ones also driving up the cost. But there's also this element that when you're an instructor, you're bringing in revenue, right? You bring students into the classroom students pay to be in those seats and you are the one contributing revenue to the university. Now, hopefully you're also contributing academic and, you know, intellectual things as well, but you're the lowest paid person in the academic system, right? If you want to get paid more money, you need to move farther away from students. You need to move farther away from doing the work that actually makes the university tick. And so if you look at what values we have, we value people with titles, which is a matter of authoritarianism, right? We don't value people who contribute to the university. We value people who have a title because if you valued people who contributed to the university, you would promote people based upon their, their product, their outcomes. But instead we promote people based upon who knows who to get promoted to the next level of, you know, the academic chain. And so you're really inspiring people to do poor jobs 
at the things that the public needs us to do. Does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely does. And it also, I mean, of course, right. When you think of how we pay teachers or how we pay like this, the people in our, the service members, how we pay police officers and like those things that are core and, and boy, it was sure brought home to us during the pandemic when we said things like, you know, these essential workers. So you're essential. And, And then we wonder now why so many, when we say like, wow, people aren't coming back to work. And it's because it's shown a bright light on our, like the ridiculousness of, and the hypocrisy of our society in terms of what's essential and what isn't and how we value those things. Now to put that in term, exactly what you just said, put it in terms of my research, it's the myths that we tell. Yes. And so I've got a couple of, um, two doors down is a, um, a couple and they're both in physical therapy of some kind. And they're at the point they are now in the pandemic. Um, they're just almost hateful to the concept where the public wants to call them heroes. And, you know, it's like, well, that's how we show our appreciation. And she's like, no, this is how you show us that we are the, the grunts of the world that you don't care about. And I kind of scratched my head about that. And she was like, you tell us we're heroes to make us enjoy what you're putting us through. And I thought, well, that's, that's fascinating. And it's so true, right? That we're, we're hel- like hailing these people up and, and lifting them up as, as icons of our culture. These are our heroes. But what we really mean is, Hey, you know, like, we're sorry that we've put you through this. We, we hope you kill, still keep taking care of us. Um, and, and I think, I think that we need right. to understand. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That, that we tell these lies, but we, they're really myths that we pass on to each other so that we can continue to live the way that we want to live. Right. And it's a way of saying like, Hey, well, look, we're doing the right thing because these are our heroes. When in reality it's, Hey, we should feel sorry for all the stuff that we've as a society have made you have to do for us. I'm so interested in that too, because you, we were talking about academia and you were talking about that. As you know, I work in a, a completely different place than I used to work. So yeah. I was all private liberal arts and now I am online virtual adult education. That is super different. And what I've been thinking a lot about as I, you know, dive deeper and deeper into this in the past couple of years is that we have these myths about what college is supposed to look like. Yeah. And, and that we stop our lives for four years and we go to school and we meet the people that will make us people and it will be beautiful. And, and for like 13% of college goers, that's the truth. And then the rest of our whole society doesn't have that experience. And because of the movies we show and the, like this ideal of what college is supposed to look like the whole rest of society, which is most of us think we did something wrong or we're lesser than, and we're not worthy of what that, of what education is supposed to look like. And we can't learn and we're not good enough. And that is not true. It's just that we are part of a myth about what something's supposed to look like that was probably built for just a few of us really. And we haven't figured out how to build it for everybody. Yeah. So I have also taught in adult programs and there's, there's kind of a comfort that I enjoy working with adults because they're, 
you know, so part of education is learning things that you don't want to learn, right? Because you think you don't need to, to know those things, but there are some people who may have been down the road before you. And, and yes, of course, there are times where for whatever reason, every academy gets, gets it wrong and, and makes you do a wasted class. Right. But, but in general, you, you don't know what's important to you until afterwards. And so with these adult classes, one of the things I love about them is students are much more engaged because they look for the practical ways to apply information. And then when they know that this isn't, you know, relevant to them, it, they check out, but the difference is they, they check out respectfully kind of like, yeah, it's okay. I'll, I'll write the paper. Don't worry. Uh, let's just move on where, you know, I think 18 year olds are like, you know, trying to fight the good fight and, and stand up for something. I'm like, listen, you know, they're, they're adults. They've been disillusioned just as much as you and I have, like they get it. <laughs> it's so funny. One of my students after he graduated came back and he said, you know what I wish I would have learned in college is that a great portion of everyday adult life is going through things that you just have to slog through it. And there are no cliff notes and there, there is no study guide. You just have to sit down and do it. And it's yeah. not going to be pretty and it's going to be, and it's going to be boring or like, he's like, but that, there's a great portion of adult life that is just that. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> it's not a great portion of success, which I'm sure there is too, but of just adult life, yeah. right. Of taking out the trash yeah, and you know, like, that is you just, just one of those to. things that, yeah, unless you've got money, just go take out the trash. Nobody enjoys it. We all do it. And welcome to life. Yeah. yeah. If you like this topic and you want to dive a bit deeper, you can listen to our original podcast about values with Dr. Dick Chapman in season one of the 92,000 Hours podcast. You can also work to identify and understand your own values by completing a core values exercise by going to our website at www.connectioncollaborative.com slash blog slash core values. But for now, let's hear more from Jeff. So talk to me a little bit about this, like we've alluded to it and I want to get like deeper into this whole idea of what your, what your, um, study has been about and what, like, what intrigued you to talk about power distance? Like, talk to me about what it is and why that, inf why that was like, that was your sticking point of curiosity that has informed your life in so many ways. So, um, Dear Malcolm Gladwell, if you're listening to this, please read the first um, page of my dissertation where I talk about you in my acknowledgments. Um, so I am a, a huge fanboy of Malcolm Gladwell. And years ago in a book, he wrote um, a chapter in which he talked about the word, the term power distance, and it clicked. I, it was just interesting to me. Um, long story short, in, in his book, it was about this, um, this person from a um, a Colombian airline and Colombia has a very high power distance as compared to the U S and basically this guy was following orders while the plane crashed and the, the black box recording is him being super respectful and polite while he's flying the plane into the ground. And, you know, like, I mean, he knew he was crashing, but his power distance was like, well, these people have an authority over me. And so I need to treat them with respect. And, you know, his whole point was that 
power distance is so ingrained in him that while he's professionally doing his job, knowing that he's going to his death seconds later, this cultural value is still driving the way that he communicates to, to the person that's you know, helping the, him the, die. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so the way he wrote about that story just intrigued me. And then um, growing up, I, I saw this all throughout my life. Um, so we, because you talked about authority so much in your evangelical upbringing. Yeah. Yeah. And so one of the things that authority is about is a title, right? And so my dad was a pastor. And so instantly he had this sense of reverence that people would give to him, um, whether he deserved it or not, um, you know, just because he had that title, they treated him as if he was a, a different level of human. Um, so much so that there was, you know, kind of this metaphor, you know, this way that they treated him where he was a little bit higher human than a human, but definitely lower than God. But he was this intermediary, which put him at a, at some level of being extra or superhuman. And I started looking at how we have researched power distance in the past. And we do this to everybody. I mean, wow. and, and when you say something like that, it sounds claustrophobic and horrible to me, but I yeah. bet a lot of people would love to be superhuman. But to me, it sounds like, oh my gosh, that would be too much. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's a lot of people in this world that feed off of it right? That, um, that see themselves as somehow a little bit better human, um, not like better quality, but just as a, as a more human than the other person. And oh my gosh. When somehow they, they get off on that. It gives them a, an ego boost or it, it fills a need for them. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm getting off track here. So you, that totally informed you. How did you get to this? Like, um, talk to me about what that means, this power distance and authority and how that like what, what was it that you studied and why did it matter to you? Okay. So the short way to understand power distance is that in high power distance cultures, you imagine a monarchy or a king, right? Where there, there's some kind of cosmic order that has somehow set this human is now ordained by whatever cosmic power to be the, the ruler over these other humans. Um, in the opposite level, um, the, the opposite of a, a power distance, high power distance culture, would be a culture who believes every single person is equal and every single person has the freedom to impact their own life. Um, now, the difference is in cultures that are higher power distance, we believe that you get ahead in life by having a title, having a name, um, being born into the right family, being born into the right side of the tracks, being born the right color. Although, you know, we don't like to talk about that, but that's that's really what high power distance means is that there are some people whose birth puts them at a different level than the rest of us. But that sounds awful to us in the United States because here, you know, our, our earliest documents say we believe that all humans, all men are created equal, right? And the fact that I even have to step back and say men, not humans, lets us know that when we wrote that, we still believed that humans had different levels of, of value to them. So, right, we... We, hit, we think our myth is that equality is the rule here in the United States, right? That you get ahead based upon the, the quality of what you can bring to this world. Yeah. But that it's reality, a meritocracy. If you just do yes. well and you do those, follow those rules, yes. you'll get the golden key. Yeah. Right. And so in a low power distance society, we, in theory, believe in meritocracy. But I think what informed my research was I... You Somehow, were disillusioned. I, you were like, <laughs> yes, I smelled, 
I smelled a lie, right? <laughs> I was like, there, there's something wrong here. Like I've always been told, we believe that all men are created equal, but if you look around, that's not what's going on. And so what's this difference between what I'm told and what I observe? And that's, that's how I found my, my question was to go research this dynamic. You know, what's fascinating to me, Jeff, is that I think you get at something that everybody struggles with, and then we solve it in different ways, right? Like your Mm -hmm. way to solve this was like, I'm going to dig in, I'm going to approach it with curiosity, and I'm going to become an academic. I'm going to, I'm going to use, like, I'm going to use that tool to figure this out. But I think that that piece is also something that really informs a lot of people who are on the opposite spectrum of you politically, who are feeling like this system isn't working for me. And I am mad as hell because you're telling me if I do these things, it'll work and it's not working. And the, and like the, the answers are on two polar ends, but the problem is probably the problem. Does that make sense? Or what if (laughs) my liberal friends and my conservative friends are both doing the exact same thing through their different lenses. Talk to me about that. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm very much in a place in my life where I, I realize there's a certain group that's just never going to listen to me and never going to change my mind or never going to change their mind. Um, and that's okay. Um, you know, and, and I've learned that, but at the same time, what one of the dynamics that I think is happening is that we all, all of us, whether we're on the Republican or Democrat side, left or right, center, you know, whatever, we all have bought into the fact that we need to scurry around and kick our own butts in this life to try to get ahead. And we do it differently, right? I think there are some people who would rather do it through authoritarian means. And then there are some people who would rather do it through um, more egalitarian means, if you will. But in the end, there, there's no such thing as justice, right? This world is not fair. And your matter, your, your ability to achieve success in this life is mostly built upon luck. And here's what's wrong with that. I can't tell my daughter that. She, my daughter's six, for those who don't know. And I can't tell her stories at night about, you know what, Audrey? Just do whatever the hell you want to do because nothing really matters. There's no such thing as so nihilistic, right? Yeah, right. But but that's really what I should be telling her is that don't listen to mom and dad about what's going to make you happy. Don't listen to us about you know what kind of career you should get because probably whenever you're you know 20 and going into career, whatever that is, it's not existing today, right? There's there's no way we can control all these things. And so we we try to run this race faster and harder. And, and still we're running a race that's rigged because we think our merit is going to lead to success. And, and that's just not something that we can trust will happen. So how are you going to make me not come out of this conversation feeling like, well, I just need to go cry for a little while and put my head under my pillow. Because let me tell you, I once went to China (laughs) Um, I met this guy named Ted. Ted is just, you know, just a a normal Chinese schmuck, just like I'm an American schmuck. And um, he was our tour guide for the day. And I was talking to him about democracy. And I was like, tell me what's the, you know, the best thing about being a Chinese person and talking about your culture. And Ted just thought for a while and 
didn't answer. I thought, oh man, I offended him or something like that. And finally, he just gives me this like Confucian saying that I've never heard before. And I really wanted to like dig into it. And when I, I looked out the window, he was like, yeah, look at all those people. And we had just left um, Tiananmen Square and there were 30,000 Chinese people waiting in line to see Mao Zedong's body. And he's like, look at all those people. What would happen if you all told them to, that they could be whatever they wanted to be and just go strive to do whatever they wanted to do? I was like, what do you, what do you mean? Like, that's what you're supposed to tell them. And we had this conversation and he said, the, the problem is if you look at the world from, from my worldview, destiny is going to happen and whatever is going to happen is going to happen. You think you can control destiny. And, and so here's the thing. If we really believe that anybody in the United States could pull themselves up by their bootstraps and be a millionaire, why aren't you? I think that's why people get so depressed. Yeah, exactly. Right. Because we believe this myth that you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And, and yes, there are some people that can, I'm sure. Right. And there's evidence that that happens, but that's not something that we can help people achieve. Right. That's, it's a matter of luck to do that. And so if we shift our worldview that, that there's nothing that you can do, that's going to overcome certain tragedies, certain great opportunities that happen in your life that, yeah, you can prepare yourselves for those as best as possible. And that opportunity may present itself to you and you could do something about it then. And if opportunity doesn't present itself to you, it's not your your fault. fault. Right. And, and I don't know how to, you know, to help you sleep better at night. Cause I I sure don't have the answer to that myself, (laughs) but, (laughs) but we have to realize that the rules that we think have kind of ordained society and life and, and all these myths that we tell us they're, they're just things that, that we do because we've just always done them just like people who do or don't see their parents naked. And, you know, it's one of those things where we've gotten ourselves to a place that's probably not healthy for us. And it's, you know, it's, it's kind of slowly eating us all alive. What are your suggestions about what happens next then? Oh, see, that's the problem. It's just easy to, to point the problem, not to solve it. <laughs> That's um, right. <laughs> I think, I think the answer to this is to understand collectivism. Um, you know, without getting in too much of a soapbox here, if, if you want to make America great, um, and, and we all do, um, America was greatest when we were at our most collective, right? The, the thing that turned America from a debtor nation to being somebody that is now the world superpower was this period of time in World War II where we were under attack and we joined together and said, hey, let's sacrifice together to do what's good for us. And, you know, without getting too deep into that and taking that metaphor, you know, too much, I think we just need to realize that when, when we think it's about pulling me up by my bootstraps, then we, we've lost, right? It's that when we pull us up by our bootstraps, we all can kind of get better, but it's that we need all of us to be working for it to succeed. I can't do this all on my own. Um, and and when, when we've seen us do things on our own, it's because we've had a lot of luck involved. It's so interesting. I was, it brings up for me when you talk about that, I went to a 
I went to a luncheon a few weeks ago, which by the way, that was crazy. I went to a luncheon a few weeks ago and, um, and the speaker, um, was a pair. She, uh, worked with, I'll have to get her information, but she worked with Robert Putnam who wrote the bowling alone. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and she has written another book with him together. And so she was talking about the, their research showing that, in terms of American society, we have never been so the last time we were this far apart from each other in terms of our social cohesion um, was um, at the civil war that we are. Wow. We're just like that right now. And that we went up and up and up and then started to go down somewhere in the sixties, in the 1960s. And so, and I can't get that out of my head. Like, so what is it? about the 1960s that started us ding 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 what do you think jeff i can tell you but no no keep going no 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 that's what i want to know like talk to me about that okay so there's this thing called the kerner report so 1968 right we we kept talking um just a couple of years ago about how um how much our our world was looking like 1968 whenever you know you had these inner city riots yeah. Um, the word inner city didn't come to American vocabulary until the, the Kerner report talked about what happened with all of the, you know, the public um, disobedience and all that kind of stuff. And it was so, you know, if you don't know your history, we had this huge unrest for the summer in 1968. And so the government said, we need a commission to go figure out why this happened uh, so that we can prevent it from happening again. Like all kinds of people, I mean, like a huge commission, bipartisan, went and did this whole study, and they just found that economics were were so far from each other that you know the people who had and didn't have led to this, and and that there were things that we were going to have to do and invest in as a society to kind of get that that gap of have and have nots back together again. Um, that report failed miserably. Um, because somebody leaked in a piece of it to the, the media before they could get it. And one of the things the report said was, we're going to have to spend a lot of money to build up the infrastructure in these places to, to you know, re-equalize. And so you know, our economy wasn't the greatest in the late 60s anyways. And here's these farmers saying, you want me to pay taxes in Iowa to go give to Detroit. And that's, you know, that's what happened right there at the end of the 1960s. And we were 20 years away from that when all of our unrest in the United States was really just peaked off. And it's, it's a very similar situation where there's parts of us in the United States who just don't feel like we're part of the other part of the United States. And, and we're able to de-empathize because yeah. we, we just want to live in our own little boxes. Yeah. Talk to me about, you had mentioned in another conversation that we had earlier about the, like, talk to me about de-empathize. How important is empathy in this situation? So here's something about um, empathy that Daniel Goleman writes about in that there are three kinds of empathy. John Littlewolf, uh, Dr. Littlewolf um, mentioned one of these really well. And it's the idea that the first part of empathy is just taking somebody else's perspective, right? It's just literally seeing things through their, their vision. The second part of um, empathy is just cognitive, um, or no, I'm sorry, that's that's the the taking somebody's perspective is cognitive. The second part of empathy is compassionate empathy. It's I feel this, I want to do something about it. And then there's the emotional part of it, which is oh my gosh, you know, like this would be awful, and you feel the same way that th those people feel. 
Well, what we know about leadership is emotional empathy is never helpful from your leader, right? You don't want the people in leadership to look at you with the, the kind of empathy where they, they feel the same kind of feeling you do, because then you're both in the, you know, the same stuck place. Um, compassion is really helpful, but what we really need is just for our leaders to start by taking our perspective, right? And then once they take our perspective, then what would you want somebody to do if you were in that same boat, right? And that's when compassion comes in. And I think we refuse to take that first step of just simply taking somebody else's perspective because we know how much empathy hurts. Um, It's why we turn the channel as soon as that starving child is on TV. Um, It's too much. Yeah. yeah. If you really feel empathy, you're going to be exhausted afterwards. Yeah. Jeremy Rifkin says there's no empathy in heaven, right? And if you think about that, it's, it's true because if heaven, I mean, whatever heaven is to you, but if heaven is this place of no pain, then you cannot have empathy in heaven. Yeah, that makes sense. It's super interesting. I am, uh, one of the things that I struggle with when you talk about power distance and authority, as you know, and we talked about that, I have like, I struggle with authority and, um, and, and I like, I like your idea of collectivism because I, I think I might naturally come from that space. Um, and I struggle with things like even, so here you are, uh, an academic and working in a university system. And one of the things that I've been struggling with, with the university system is that I worked with people in a university system where we talk all the time about the importance of collectivism, the importance of like, not like all sorts of things that seem a little more left-leaning. Right. And yet the structure itself is so authoritarian that there are, that it's like, we don't have the ability to shine a light on our ourselves in terms of the way that our own structures um, and the way that we kind of like hold it over people. Like, I mean, your faculty, your staff, and, and like the, I can't tell you how many times I would hear like the staff are so upset that the faculty think they're so much better. Right. And then there's the, right. It is true. I mean, I, I tell that story that like I had a, I remember having a, a faculty member seeing me at commencement with my robe because your robe has to signify who you are and what degree you have. Like your degree is so important. And I think it's this underneath that maybe it's supposed to be a sign of meritocracy, but it's not, it's a sign of social stratus, right? Like, like uh, we're stratifying who we are and think it's natural. Um, It's like, crazy for me. And, uh, and I, and I remember that one faculty member saying, Oh, what you have a doctorate. And I said, Oh, I have a JD. And that person said, Oh, well, that's not a real doctorate. That's not a real degree. <laughs> and I was like, and the that I will always remember. And, th- and this was, and this is a sociology professor who is known for talking about like how we're all supposed to consider each other. And it, like these things that end up being something that for me are that myth, that myth is when it's hard, right? That we say that um, the academy is not about authority 
and, and industry is so much authoritarian. I'm like, I'm not sure that's actually true. So the letters matter, right? The letters to your, your degree matter, right? Because it's a way for him to look up, you know, say, well, I have my sociology, probably PhD. Well, yeah. you're one of those, you know, JDs thing, right? You're, you're like an MD, right? Or, or you're, you know, yeah. you're somewhere on the professional, professional. level. Not the academic. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Whenever the letters that he really needs to be different are your chromosome letters, which is, is really what this is about, but it's, it's a way for him to use the system to remind you that he's above you. Yes. And, and that's what the problem I think is with one of the ways that we, we get stuck in this thing where even though we know the right answer, it's this sense of justice that I think we're, we're missing out on, right? Because we believe in theory that the world operates in a very just way. And so what that means is as I've been climbing the ladder, right? Poop rolls downhill. And I know that because I've been the recipient of a lot of that as I've been climbing the ladder. And so all of us say, when I get up there to that place, I'm not I'm going not to, be that going to. Boss, And yet right? we do it. And that's exactly right. And so what we do that is not because you know, we want to betray everything about our values. It's that we sit there and say, well, you know, I had to go through this. If I had to go through with it, then they did too. All right. There's, um, there's a religious school, not far from here where, where I live, um, that is actually known as being a, um, a pacifist, uh, religious based school. And not too long ago, the police went into a fraternity and arrested a fraternity member because he used a, a towel during a hazing incident against somebody's bare testicles and ruptured them. And they had to rush him to the hospital. Right. And, and I mean, that's just one of the worst cases of hazing that I've ever heard of, but it, you know, like what person thinks it's okay to do that. And the only answer I can come up with is a person who said, Hey, it was done to me then I can do yeah. it to them. Right. And so somebody has to be that person that disrupts this cycle um, for us to say, we need poop to stop rolling downhill. Um, and I'm going to be that person that's going to do my darndest to, to interrupt that cycle so that, you know, we, we can get out of this somehow. Fascinating. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm the kind of person that I would rather be called by my name, not by my, my title. Um, at the same time, right. Th there's, there was a time where, you know, like all my life, I was like, I'm never going to have people call me doctor, but there was a time where I was like, no, I I've earned this. Damn it. Like you will call me this, like, you know, like people around me, you know, my trash guy's going to call me that just because I need that validation. Um, right. And it's because we've been climbing that ladder so long it, and we deserve to, to feel that, you know, that, that little bit of sense of accomplishment. Um, but here's the thing. When you, when you play by these rules and you reach the top and you realize that the rules were, were fake, you know, that they were um, alive from the, the beginning of the process, it's really tough. Right. But a lot of us want to cling to that because we've invested so much into that. What does it mean about us if we've climbed the ladder for all this time and we haven't gotten right? So, so we have to cling to that. At the same time, my response to that is when you force somebody to call you by your title and, and you do it in hopes that that's going to inspire them to drive harder to get to you, you're, you're playing the rules of a fake meritocracy. Right. Because you're thinking that the only thing that's standing between them and success is determination. Right. That if if they call me by this name and they see me in this role, 
that they'll have this vision and they'll just work harder. When the reality is that that's probably has very little to do with their ability to succeed or not, right? That it's their ability to succeed is based upon some measure of luck, right? And, and that luck may be, did the car break down when my books were due to buy, yeah. you know, to start the semester, yeah. right? And I, I've seen a student's entire semester yeah. derailed from something so small and temporary, but in their situation, in their world at that moment, that, that wasn't so small. And so I, I don't think that those kind of good intentions actually inspire people to, to climb. Um, I think it's the, the stuff where you tell people I climbed, I'm not as happy as I might seem. And I, I don't want to tell you all the trauma it took to get here. Um, right. And, and I don't know if that helps people so that they, you know, like throw their hands up now and say, forget it. I'm not going to do that. But what I, I hope is that at least it helps us drive our meaning internally rather yeah. than from this external thing, which is what authoritarianism is about. It's super right? I need my daughter, if, if she's the most important thing to me, I need the way that she looks at me to be the thing that fulfills my soul, not my paycheck. Yeah. And that, and you want to be in a society in which the way that she looks at you is not determined by your paycheck. Exactly. In my, um, in the mentoring program that I did, and we'd bring in during our, we called them Saturday sessions. And during the sessions, we'd bring in people to tell, we called it their E-True Hollywood story. And then I realized after, after several years that young people have no idea what an E-True Hollywood story was. And that time was over. And so, um, but we would have them come in and we'd say, everything is on the table here. Do not tell us, like, I'll tell people about your cool CV that shows that you're the president of X and you've done Y, but when you come in, they can ask you anything and you, and tell us, like, tell them the real story of your life. And people come in, if they were, if they had courage, they would come in and tell the real story. Like I'm on my second family because to have a CV that looks like that meant that I hurt my, my spouse and my children. And I don't have a relationship with them because that's the only way I could find to have a CV that looked like that. Yeah. And it blows people's mind because we don't tell that story that you, that there are sacrifices that you are willingly making to have the, what we consider in our American society, the dream, you know, right. you know what I mean? And that dream looks good on paper, Yeah. but in the meantime, right. Are, are you crying? You're not crying yourself to sleep at night, but, but you may um, be alone. Yeah. So just something interesting that's happened. Um, one of the things I do in my coffee business is I, um, I deliver coffee, you know, since I don't have a, a brick and mortar and, you know, I do a lot of porch drop-offs and, and COVID and whatnot, but now that I'm getting to know my you know clients more and, and my delivery time has actually been a lifesaver for me. I'm a huge extrovert and COVID has been so awful for me, um, in terms of just extroversion, introversion stuff. And so I'm, I'm hearing all these people's stories. I'm like, Hey, how are you? And I, and I guess I just have that you know, talk to me and tell me everything kind of thing. Yeah. And so many of my coffee clients are professional people who are, are barely holding it together. And I, I've never heard so many people in such a short time, talk about how much anxiety they're dealing with. Um, and, you know, life has shifted in COVID, 
we're, we're figuring things out because life was so bad and our system was so fragile that it just broke. And, you know, COVID just exposed this thing that now we're, we're putting the pieces back together again. And um, I just heard that last month, uh, there was something where more people quit their job at, you know, like it was some record that we hit. And I mean, it's, I think we're in a place where people are reevaluating everything because this is, this is kind of like a reset moment for us. Um, And, you know, not everything is going to get fixed, but, but I think we're taking steps because we realize everything we've been doing has just led us to this very precarious moment. And, and I think a lot of us are, are going through that um, devolving dark point to, to get to the dawn. Um, but, but I think it's because we've been playing these, these games that are, are so unhealthy for us because it's, it's the only path that we, we can somehow try to control to get to the top. And now I, we know that from what you're telling me today, that that top can look very different if you think differently about what it is that you value and that you get it. Like maybe where we have our own determinism is in ourselves to, like taking a moment to define what we value in our own lives um, so that we can like really think that through. Our values. Um, Shalom Schwartz is the, the kind of the guru of what um, values is like motivational goals mean. And his, his concept of values are the things that are our compass. They're the things that drive our decisions. And that every tough decision in our life is made between two competing values where we, we feel like both of these are the thing that we should be going towards. Right. And, and I think that's probably where this anxiety is coming from is that, you know, I'm, I'm in this beginning place of disillusionment where I can head towards the, the success path that I've always been told, or I can try to figure out this thing that my, my heart and my body and my soul and my mind are telling me is, 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 is a better way maybe. Right. And, and I think that we're, we're determining right now, or we're seeing what is most important to us. That's so great. That's so great. So I want to honor your time and honor this discussion. I want to make sure that I have talked about what you want to make sure gets across in this discussion. And I had to struggle to not, cause I did it several times, but I want to, I had to struggle to not tell stories about like the whole mythology of the things that we talk about and how I like, it's partially why I'm not in the, like, I'm not doing the PhD right now because I struggle with what I thought it was supposed to be and what it turned out to be. Um, Can I not honor your time and interject there for a minute? Yeah. So speaking of that, um, so for those of you who don't know, Annalisa and I went to a very, um, a a non-traditional program, right? I mean, because they, they admit that like getting your PhD is something that, you know, most people fail at who start the process because it's so difficult. And so they try to make the system better and, and they're very open-minded, progressive people. But in my dissertation, when I talked about how the concept of gatekeeping, right, that making sure that people go through these, these hoops that people have gone through, I was told by a person on my committee that you but, but you do understand that we are the gatekeepers and we have to make sure that this follows certain conventions, right? And, and even though our program is challenging all of those conventions, there was a point where, you know, somebody said, but, but not that but one. kind of, 
Yeah, but, but not this one. And, and there was no good reason for it. The only reason was, in essence, they didn't say these words, but this is the way it's always been done. Yeah. And, you know, and, and so it's, it's tough for people who have been at the top to say, oh, you shouldn't do it this way, because that means that somehow the way I I did did it it. wrong. Yeah. That I wait, I want you to have to, I remember going to law school and and while I was in law school with some friends, they were like, I am never, ever going to be that person that treats my paralegal or my assistant, like they're lesser than, because that's ridiculous. I've been that person. I never want to do it. And I remember, or actually I remember they were like, why are we charging people so much money per hour? That's crazy. Like that doesn't make any sense to me. And when we were graduating, he's like, you bet your bottom dollar, I'm going to charge people at least that much because of all I had to just go through. (laughs) And I was like, wow, like it stuck with me where I was like, you changed from here to here. And I think that the, the whole idea of values and the myths that we tell I don't know. I think I had this idea in our PhD program that because it was about leadership and change, that we'd actually like be doing more about leading and changing. And and I and I I struggle and have continued to struggle with like what that means, right? Like what like I don't think we're and and I, and it really came to a head for me because I remember when um, Trump won and I'm at a school that's about leadership and change that is very so much about social justice. And then when like nothing changed in the way that we approached where we were as a society or how we did things or like, I was just like, what? I can't, what? This is not what this is supposed to, I, I, it, it stopped me in my tracks where I was like, I don't think I believe in this. And now how am, how am I going to jump through your hoops when you're not doing the things that I came here for? <laughs> it lets you know how ingrained in us this is. Yes. Right? That it's, it's so much of part of our DNA that, you know, the, the people who have been at the, the leading, you know, cutting edge of, of change in, in terms of the way that the academy is run and, and certain social justice things that even those people have our blind spots yes. right? and that we're, we're protecting what's ours, right? We're, we're not letting other people into this level of success. And, and I think that's part of authoritarianism, right? It's that the ladder only has one space at the top. And so authoritarianism is intentionally an alienating thing where it, it separates us, right? And it, it's narrowing down who can be at the top. And, you know, and as we've seen in, in past, right, it's, it's the powerful person who as long as, and, and this is true, no matter who's on the ballot, right? Democrat or Republican, we only can choose two, or we, you know, we have two to yeah. choose from. And so we, a lot of us will just double down and it's like, well, I don't really like the, the, the guy or the, the very rarely the woman, right. But, uh, you know, I'll vote for him because it's they're, lesser. They're the, yeah. It's the lesser two evils, or it's the best way to get the thing that I need him to get to, right? Like, yeah, yeah, I don't agree with him about that, but this is the thing that I'll, you know, yeah. I'll allow them to do, and I'll forget to forgive the other things. Yeah, exactly. It's a, it's a, it's a complete struggle all the way through. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thanks for taking the time with me. I'm having so much fun. You are good at this, and I love listening to you ask questions of your guests. Um, you 
you are such a, a person that brings goodness out of people um, because you are very egalitarian in your nature, right? You, I think you know how to play the game, obviously, because you've had to. But when it's it's you and you know another person, you're you're the opposite of of this hierarchical thing. And I'm, I I really appreciate the curiosity you bring out of other people. Awesome, thank you so much. My thanks again to Jeff Gurton. You can connect with him on LinkedIn. And if you're interested in supporting his new entrepreneurial effort, Red 5 Coffee, you can find him on Facebook at Red 5 Coffee in Ohio. He ships everywhere. And trust me, it's really good. Next week, we're going to do something different. Your guest will be me. And I'll be talking about vulnerability. Yikes. I'm nervous, but ready. I hope you'll join me.